This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. You guys, I use these every single day. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it is so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes. Plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify eye drops. And when you try it, you'll see that it is what your eyes have been looking for. So check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker club podcast. If you're listening to this one over on our regular for the love podcast feed, welcome you guys. This is a part of the fabulous Jen Hatmaker book club package, which is exclusive interview with our author of the month, which is one of my favorite things about book club. We have gotten to ask them our personal questions and tell them what our response was to their books. And they've created incredible playlists for our book club that our authors spend way a ton of time on, by the way. We've gotten playlists from our authors that are 25 songs long, and each one has like a paragraph of explanation why they chose it. It's the cutest and the best thing. Anyway, book club is incredible. We would love to have you. You can find out more over at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. All right, here we go. So you guys, book clubbers, I don't know if I say it enough, but we're just so glad that you are here. We're so glad you're in this community, that you're sticking around with this community. We host and are open to so many conversations and some of them are difficult and some of them cause tension. Here we are, right? I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for you. I, our books have not only kind of enriched our brains, but they've given us all these anchor points around important discussions and points of view and experiences. And we've just kind of grabbed hands and waded through all that together. And I love it. It's very enriching for me and I'm better. I'm basically better because of book club. 
And so I love you and I'm grateful for your presence in this community. You guys. All right. I'm so pleased to bring you the girl with the louding voice this month by Abby Derry. Okay. So before we start digging into the story, let's talk about Abby and her incredible resume. So Abby grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, which is obviously where our book is set. And so she went on to study law at the University of Wolverhampton. And not only did she kind of excel there, but she went on to earn her master's in international project management and an MA in creative writing. (laughs) What a slacker, right? So to say that she has succeeded academically is obviously an understatement. But on top of all that, she is now a New York Times bestseller with the book we're discussing for this month, The Girl with the Louding Voice. It was just acclaimed. And it it hit the market unique and innovative and different, as of course our readers know at this point. You know, we've all read it. It's written in dialect. It is is a fascinating story, a kind of glimpse behind the curtain of class and and race and and gender. By the way, Girl with a Louding Voice was also chosen as a Read with Jenna Today show book club pick and indie. Next pick, like it's, it, it drew everyone's attention for good reason. I, I don't know if you knew this was Abby's debut novel. And so she started out strong, right out of the starting blocks, you guys. I read this book last year. I was looking for something. I was trying to remember my origin story here. I was looking for something interesting. And I think I was specifically looking, I wanted a book set in like that portion of the world. I I wanted the storyline. I wanted the culture and this book like came right up and I just ordered it randomly off Amazon. I'm like, let me just see what this is like. This is just for my own reading. And as soon as I read it, I was like, this is so different and so unique and tons of themes through here about empowerment and disempowerment and agency and women, stuff that we care about and love. And so ran it up the flagpole for book club. And I'm so happy that it's this month's book. Also, Abby is lovely and interesting and charming. She talks in this interview a lot about how this book came to be and what her inspirations were, which might surprise you. Like... It might surprise you to know essentially which side of the equation she grew up on and how she came to write Adonis the way that she did and why she included some things and excluded some things. Anyway, it was a really interesting peek behind her process. And I'm just delighted to have met her all the way over from UK when we hopped on this interview. So I am so pleased to share this conversation with the author extraordinaire, Abby Derry. Okay, everybody, it is like really my great delight to welcome the absolutely wonderful Abby to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to meet you. Hi, same here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I read your book last year and I was trying to remember how I found it. I was looking for something specific and your book came up as a recommendation and I read the cover. I looked at you. I read the arc, the plot arc and went, I want to read this. This was just when I was just being a reader. I just wanted to, wanted it for my own reading. And as soon as I read your book, I told the team, this has to go in book club. This is so good and so interesting and so different. 
like so innovative. You're an incredible writer. And my book club community is loving, loving the girl with a louding voice. That's so good. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's dive in. I know for me and for my, the members of book club, and I'm guessing a lot of your sort of international readers that the first thing that we notice, of course, about the book is the style that it's written in kind of in dialect. And I love that about your book. That to me was just one of the most interesting and innovative portions of the whole story. I wonder if you could talk about that. I wonder, were you worried at all that people maybe might have a mental roadblock because of, and I want to say her name too. I have it in my head, how I say it. I like to know how you say, is it, how do you say Adonai's name? Adonai. Adonai. Because of her English, sort of the, the way that she speaks English. I just would love to hear your decision and what went into your decision to write it in, in that sort of very precise, like Nigerian fashion. So first of all, when I was writing the book, I was not expecting that you and I would have this conversation or that anyone would read it. Oh it my was. gosh. <laughs> I was doing a, a master's degree, like a postgraduate course uh, for creative writing. And I had received quite interesting feedback to some of the stories I'd shared about how my characters needed to, needed to be something a bit more about them. And so when I went to writing this book, I knew I wanted to tell a story of a young girl who was semi-illiterate and had, in, you know, had only three years of education. And that was very different from who I am. And so I decided to try to create a character that I could give her the story that she deserves. And one of the ways you can do that with writing, because it's not a movie or anything, is through the voice of the character. And I wanted her to sound very much like some of the girls that I knew growing up, that were housemates around us and who navigated English language in their own way. And so that's why I decided to do that, to try to convey her innocence and who she really is, but also to try to do something different, which was I, as as an immigrant in the UK 20 years ago, 22 years ago now, being told how some people thought I sound, I was quite intelligent for how well I spoke English. So I thought it would be fun to write a character that was intelligent, but had very, very small grasp of English language and just sort of see how those sort of work together. So it was an experiment that I just hoped I'll get an A for. You got um, an A. <laughs> I mean, the response to this book has been widespread and like universally positive. I know, I mean, none of us put our hand to a writing project and know what's going to come of it. That's not why we do it. You do it for the love of the work and the love of writing. And of course, in your case, as a novelist, the love of your characters and the story. But I mean, could you have imagined the response that this book has received like in the general market? It is just, a, it's a darling. I mean, has it been like incredible for you? Unreal. I, I can't believe it. I, I have stopped looking at sort of some of the, because early days, I, I remember when, when the book came out and we had like five Goodreads reviews. Yes. And, and I was like, oh man, I think one of them was a three star. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to tank. No one's going to love my story. And then I stopped completely reading reviews for my mental health. And then I checked about eight months later and I saw like 70,000. I was like, oh my days. And I went completely bonkers. And I'm so grateful. I I don't think I would ever get used to it. And I would never take it for granted. I feel so, so honored and humbled. 
It's so well done. Was it hard to write like that? Did you have to really dig deep for that? Because you have to stay in it the entire time. I mean, you don't really ever get a break from it, especially, I mean, obviously that was a part of your experience growing up, but it, it was ancillary to you. You know, it, you probably had to, re, did you have to do even, even more research than simply life to finally nail down some of the word swaps and the, the order of words in a sentence? I, I just, I wonder if it was clunky at first. Yeah, it was. And I said, to, I think when I wrote the first three pages, I enjoyed it because, yeah. And I said to myself, after the third page, I enjoyed it, but it was laborious. And I said, if I can't carry on after the third page, I will stop. And so the initial story, was going to have two different voices. It was going to be Miss Tia's voice, oh. a bit of her marriage and her struggles and Adini's voice and then meeting somewhere halfway. And I remember showing it to somebody, my supervisor, and he's saying, Abby, you need to sustain this voice because people will think that two different books is too jarring, two different experiences that may never merge somewhere as, as you see it. And I thought there's no way I could do that. So it was hard. So I, I, I spent the, I think the initial draft was about eight months and I read nothing else. I didn't read any novels, anything apart from research on child labor and all of that. And I tried to think in the way she was thinking. And I constantly had to translate my mother language, which is Yoruba, into English to try. And, and it's interesting when you translate many languages, actually, I've spoken to people from France and they say the same thing. When you translate many languages, it kind of sounds like Adini, the way she speaks. And so that's kind of the way I got through it. But I, you know, I, I didn't read anything else for like a year. This is fascinating to me. I'm fascinated with the the novelist's process in general. And I'm curious how Ozani came to you. How did she come to you like fully developed? Did she kind of show herself to you pretty complete? Was she an amalgamation of girls that you knew or saw or bore witness to. I'm curious how you begin to think of her and think of her life and her heart and her mind and her fears and her hopes and dreams. Because sometimes novelists tell me that a character literally presents themselves. Here I am, write me, you are channeling me. Yeah, she did. I mean, she did. I think she had been following me from Nigeria all these years. Because I know that, and I didn't realize it was she was going to come out that way in a book. I know that for a long time, my husband's Nigerian. Whenever I had conversations with him, and we grew up in different cities in, in Nigeria, we never met in Nigeria. We flew to the UK together on the same day, interestingly. Uh, what? To, yeah, I know. I know. No, right? yeah, no we way. We flew to the UK. I know. Both came in as students. He was on a he was on a KLM flight, so he went through Amsterdam, and I was on a British Airways flight. And, and we came to the UK on the same day, and then we met like two years later, and we got married. I cannot even up. believe that. Yeah, mm. I know, I know. So I, I used to ask him questions about his housemates and what did they used to say, and he would tell me. And I used to sort of take that on and speak to other people, but I never knew I was going to write about it until. So when I wrote the first line of the book. It felt like I was regurgitating everything. Just it, it, she refused to let me go for a long time. Even when I was plagued by the usual self doubt, is anybody going to read this? She would. It felt like she would say, "You better don't stop. Like you better keep going, keep going." And, and that's how we felt. You included so many themes and sort of cultural expectations for us to wade through so many of them difficult from a 
a modern woman's perspective to have to really process what her options were, what the expectations of her were going to be as a child. And this conflict of what so many in her environment said is good and what she felt in her heart was bad. It was just a, it's a lot to work through. And as we think about it from a standpoint of women having agency, you know, over their own life. And so I want to talk about the beginning of the book when we see her just absolute trepidation. And by the way, in my opinion, writing her in in the voice that you chose for her I thought it was a super highway for emotion. I don't think I would have felt her emotions as deeply if, as if you had just translated it word for word to English. The way that it was written, I mean, I was with her every step of the way, every single bump in the road, every worry, every fear. It was the emotion came through for me the absolute loudest. But when we, we she's got her upcoming marriage, of course, and we see her family and her friends excited about it. I mean, even girls her age saying this is a wonderful good. So I'd like to hear you talk about the juxtaposition of a family whose traditions are very steeped in arranged marriages, which is, of course, common in plenty of the world. And then including that trepidation of being just 14 and heading into a marriage with an older man with other wives. I, I just, we had to wrestle, you know, through that experience that she had really no, no agency over really at all. And so can you talk about that experientially and then what it was like to sort of write through that process for her? Um, I think it was really hard. Writing the first half of the book was really difficult because my daughter was eight at that time. And I was just thinking about my daughter and saying, you know, Adin is just a few years older than she is. And now my daughter is 13, which is, you know, Adin's age. And I can't imagine... And I think that was what I kept doing was trying to imagine my daughter and trying to think of what what would she go through? What would she say? So that I could write it as a mother, but also as a woman who was feeling these things. And I remember that there were many times that I would pause and just leave the manuscript alone for a bit just to take it in. But then I'll then go on to YouTube or wherever it is and then watch videos of girls getting married and hearing their stories and then I would say to myself Abby you need to go back you need to write this it was really difficult um it was difficult to write it was difficult to write Khadija's scenes as well but it was it was necessary to be able to tell the story I wanted to tell we're gonna get to Khadija in just a second I agree and some of those parts were really hard to read like particularly when she moved in with Rufu's other wives and seeing how he spends certain nights with different women. And what I, I appreciated about your choices as the narrator, as the author, is that you showed us the truth that really, however it appeared on the outer, on the outside of an, of an arranged marriage situation with multiple wives, Inside, you showed us the conflict for all of them, really, and for different reasons. But, you know, we see the pain that it causes the first and the older wives, 
the middle wives who are kind of settled in. So this is just what I have. Then these 14 year old brides coming in for all the women. That was a painful scenario, largely. And for some reason, it was a tiny bit comforting to read of their, that inside every one of those women lived dreams and the desire to be loved well and safety, kind of the th- things that women have worldwide. Universal. They're universal. And I, th- I think there's a possibility of readers who don't grow up in that sort of cultural tradition to look in on it and go, well, I guess the women are just happy with that. I guess that's enough. And I guess that feels fulfilling. And you allowed it to be way more complicated and way more complex. And that made me feel drawn to the women, even all of them. I mean, even however badly they were behaving, like however mean that (laughs) made them or abusive to one another or to the incoming wives, I had, it gave me a, a compassion. And I appreciated you letting that be complex. I would love to hear your thoughts on how you felt about the other wives at Marufu's house and writing them and developing those characters. And because we see two, two incredibly different women and very different experiences, of course, for Adonai. Yeah, I think it's interesting because as an author, you can, many of what you write is just pure imagination and also trying to project yourself into other people's shoes. And, and and I think writing those, for instance, the first wife who was Adonai's mother's friend, right? They sold in the market together. I try to imagine how, you know, she would feel seeing who is essentially her daughter, right? So she sees it as almost an incestuous relationship, but she's thinking, I, I, I knew when you were born, I knew your mother, and here you are coming to marry my husband. So there's no way. And then I have a daughter your age who used to play at the stream with you, right? And you guys were friends. So I can never accept you because as far as I'm concerned, you you did this to me, right? You've hurt me by betraying the trust that the relationship I had with your mother and betraying the trust I have towards you as your mother as well. So writing that and there's no way they could could have been friends. I mean, they could have been, but I just wanted it to show a woman in that situation, especially because the reason why her husband is taking another wife and another wife is because he has just girls and he wants he wants a, a son. And there's, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. It just happens. I know there's advancement in technology these days, but in, in places like that and in many parts of the world, there's nothing you can do about that. You just get what you're given. And so there's, there's writing that and just trying to channel her pain and trying to understand where she's coming from. And then there's Khadija who thinks, well, I've got a man that I'm in love with anyway. So me being with you is providing food for me, but I can still go keep seeing my my ex-boyfriend who no one allowed us to marry because he was very poor. And hey, they've got boys in their family. So you know what? I'll give you the boy you want. Keep feeding me and I'll keep seeing this guy. So that was Khadija's point of view. So from that point of view, Khadija feels, I didn't eat, you're not a threat. I really don't care about this guy. He provides, and that's all I need from him, right? And then there's 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 Aduni who's coming in, thinking, "Who, what on earth am I doing here? I deserve better than this. This wasn't my mother's plan for me. This wasn't anyone's plan for me apart from my father. And I need to figure out what to do. Either grow to to live like this, 
at, at that time, you know, until what happened to Khadija happened, I didn't really have no choice but to live and find joy in the little things. And that's what gets her through, is finding joy in the little things of life and trying to make the best of the situation she's find, found herself in. Well, that brings me, I want to talk about Khadija. You know, we obviously loved her. And that was a character that felt beloved to me and very, I mean, it's funny to say maternal because she's just 20, you know, I mean, she's still really, she's a kid herself, but Adani's relationship with Khadija was just a whole deal that you took us on. Their bond, her nurture toward Adani was so tender. And, and those were those little joy moments. Like if we had some, there they were. And those little sweet connection points. And so I would love to hear you talk about Khadija and your decision. It was, it was hard and sad. I I knew as I was reading it, like, we're going to lose her. That's where we're going. And I I was talking myself out of it. Like, no, it's going to, we're going to get some really interesting, like birth salvation experience. I I wrote a whole plot line, um, but I knew. I knew as well, I was getting to that point, like she's dying and, and then there's nothing Adani can do. And that the, the way the system is set up, she has no recourse. She will be blamed. She will likely be killed for what will be assumed about her role in her death. And so I just want to hear you talk about that. I wonder if that part of the story was hard for you to write, if it was difficult to put women into the, all these positions, really of just powerlessness in largely knowing that really there is nothing they can do to secure a different outcome. No one is really going to come to their rescue. They have to create this little sort of secret cabal behind the curtain to even just keep one another going that the men are not going to honor them. Or while I know that this is all absolutely true and true historically in the history of time, this is the ubiquitous female experience. It's still hard to read. And so what was it like for you to craft that part? Just Khadija in general, but also her sort of story arc. I mean, at first, I wasn't even thinking much for Khadija. She was just going to be a friend. But then I figured out that it's, it's important to tell, even if it's for a few pages, to tell her story. Because she has accepted her situation. And why has she accepted it? And so writing that, and, and of course I needed a reason for I didn't need to get away because Lagos, her against Lagos was my end goal. But like every author does, you, you need to think of something that is enough to get the lead, to get the, the character, your, your, to get out of that situation. And so one of the things I wanted to show with Khadija's story was apart from the relationship, apart from the friendship that they had, that I've seen in my research and talking to people is possible between co-wives. They, you know, they, you know, I remember growing up, although it was a very different setting, there was a friend of mine who had two stepmothers that were absolutely stunning. So there were three women and, you know, they would visit her at school, all dressed in the same designer gear and, you know, and were stunning and they had an amazing relationship. And I could not understand it growing up thinking, how on earth you guys share one husband and your best of friends? And they still are. It's been many, many years. I wanted to just kind of show that a bit in in a rural setting in where there's no money and there's poverty and, you know, how do you do that? Also to show that, you know, Khadija's death 
was as a result of what it is that girls are suffering and, and is being denied of, of, of many young girls, which is the lack of education. So she believes in her ignorance that by having a relationship with a man who has boys in his family, that she should get a boy. And that by refusing to see a midwife who could have easily helped her birth this child, would have maybe might have saved her life and so she stubbornly refused because she believes that and so writing all those things just to show these points was really hard for me because it felt a bit cruel but I knew that that's the reality there's stories like this that happens and there are even more tragic endings you know yeah it's tragic that she died but even in other stories that I've heard where situations like that have happened the girl or the boyfriend was lynched and killed because they suspected that he had a hand in the death it was really difficult. And I remember that was another one where I had to pause. I think I even cried after I wrote that, you know. And I thought, this is so short. It's just like the really first sort of 20 pages or so of the story. But this has really affected me. How on earth am I going to finish this book? But I, I just, you know, got back up and just carried on. It just, again, I commend you for including it because all of that is just true maternal death and childbirth, lack of education, lack of maternal care, uh, superstitions about, you know, being bathed in the river, you know, the whole thing, like, that's just true. That's real life and it is happening. And so even though we wanted some of our favorite characters to thrive and survive, the truth of this story would be that a lot of them don't. And so that's the novelist's gauntlet to tell it true when tidy might feel better. It would feel a little bit more comforting. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. In the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, we have this thing we do called Talk Therapy Thursdays. We have such an incredible community. It's really the best corner of the internet. And it's beautiful to see the support and friendships that have been forged in there. But while connection and community is vitally important, we also know that professional therapy is a big part of mental and emotional wellness too. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. I've, by the way, never not met my own therapist online. And I love reminding my community that can be as easy as logging on or just hopping onto your phone. BetterHelp works because they make it affordable and easy for you to have access to a professional therapist on your own schedule. And you can talk to them from anywhere, like in as soon as 24 hours from right now. You don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You'll get timely and thoughtful engagement with their customized online therapy. Plus, they have therapists who specialize in a range of different expertise. So start prioritizing your mental health today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and my podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash for the love. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Parents, we can all use a little help from our friends and parents of tweens and teens. If you know, you know, this is especially true because they're maniacs. God bless them. This particular age group has its own set of challenges and bumps and roadblocks to navigate. And it all just feels like a lot because it is. That's why I developed a me course to guide you through this season that's jam packed with my greatest learnings over the years and practical, actionable steps forward. Okay, and I brought in a friend and shame-proof parenting expert, Mercedes Samudio for this course to help us do it all without shame. Because we know 
the feeling of parent shame is a real and debilitating thing. So we're going to cover how to establish healthy communication, what to do about codependency, which may not be what you think it is. So much more. It's all in here. And I can tell you a lot of my personal stories of my successes and failures as a parent, having done this five times now. We've also packed this me course to the brim with so many resources to help you parent your kids in the healthiest, most connected, non-shaming way. And not just non-shaming for them, non-shaming for you. So if you have questions about parenting your growing kiddos, this is your course. When you register, you also get access to our private me course support community of beautiful humans just like you. We're doing limited time pricing for the parenting me course. You can save $20 with the code parenting20 at mecourse.org. We're also doing a bundle deal for all four of my current me courses for $138, which you guys is half off. That's the most incredible deal. The other three me courses are finances, simplicity and habits. Okay. Your code is four course bundle, the number four, four course bundle at mecourse.org. That's mecourse.org. I want to go forward because of course we see Adani like sold as a housemaid, right? To big mag, madam in Lagos. And, you know, she basically goes from one terrible situation to another. Again, this is just me because I guess hope springs eternal. When I'm reading and she's in the car ride <laughs> with the brother and they're on their way, we don't exactly know what she's stepping into. I'm like, this is going to be the moment she's got to a generous, like, <laughs> kind hearted. She's going to learn what it means to be a, a powerful woman with influence. <laughs> I just, I wanted her to have a break, but again, this is more true. Like this is more true. And so why did you think this was an important transition to make? And ultimately to be fair, it did move her closer to her goal, ultimately, of being an educated free woman. So it was important to her own personal liberation, but it wasn't like black and white. It wasn't like rags to riches. Did you know that was coming? Did you see that in the big picture when you were thinking through the story at large? Like, this is going to be the intermediate step. Yeah, I mean, that was, in fact, when I first, first, very, very first draft, the Lagos, her going to Lagos was the start of the book. So her father tells her this and the next day she moves and she leaves, right? She doesn't go through all of that. But it felt very rushed, you know? So that was always going to happen because telling the story of a housemaid was my goal. But I sat down and I said to myself, Abby, what, how do these girls become housemaids? Because the girls that I knew growing up, they arrived fully formed as maids. We all completely forgot that they had a backstory that many of them did not want to be there, did not want to be cooking and cleaning and, you know, washing up after this family who were complete strangers. And they'll be there for like maximum of a year and move on to another family and go from family to family. And just imagine that. And I remember that when I was writing, discussing with, with my husband at first, he was saying, Abby, because they had a lot of maids for some reason. They, they had many. And he said, I knew nothing about our maids surname, birthdays, you know, one of my best friends called me after the book came out and she called me, she was crying because she has, she has a daughter, same age as mine. And she was like, Abby, 
I'm putting my daughter in music lessons and she's going swimming and we had maids and I know nothing about them. So I think it was important for me to then take the time to tell that story of so that to you, the reader, yeah, even though Big again, Big Madam is like who we were growing up, and all you're thinking is go do the chores. For most people, it's just go do the chores. Who you are and who you want to become has got nothing to do with the contract of agreement we have here. You're here to work and you've got to do your work. And so as far as Big Madam is concerned, yes, she has some frustrations. She's doing nothing wrong. She's paying the guy that brought her to me, as it happens, that the many times the housemaids are not paid directly, even till now. So they pay whoever brings them, a parent, an uncle, somebody like that. And the guy goes. And so as far as she's concerned, she's doing what she needs to do. But it was also important for me to show Adini a different side of womanhood, which is even though you get your education and everything you're looking for, as a woman, you will battle for the rest of your life to be heard. And so that was important for me to tell. Mm. It's so interesting for me to think about your personal like childhood and how much you experienced kind of on the other side of the equation and how this deeply impacted the way you wrote this. I'm so curious if you don't have to answer this, if this is too personal, but like, did your family and your sort of your community of sort of socioeconomically matched friends and neighbors, I wonder what their response was to your book. Did you have any conflict as you sort of wrote this story from the, the maid's perspective, essentially? I remember that the night before the book was released in the UK, I remember that I said to my husband, I, I think I've done something really wrong. And is it too late to pull out of this? And he said, The night before release, is that what you said? The night before, yeah. And he I was think like, it's too late. Wrong, yes. <laughs> he said, a few people are going to kill you, Abby. If you do yes, that. that's right. You know, yeah. So I was terrified. I was petrified and all of that. And, and this was because I was telling the story of many people, right? Many people saw their parents, especially growing up. I, luckily, I didn't see that with my mom. But my mom still treated the housemaid as maids, but there was no cruelty or beatings or anything, but they still had their own cutlery. They still were not, still not as fully integrated into the family, right? Because they were going to be there for a short time. So it was almost like, why invest all that time? Because they're going to go away anyway. But around us, I mean, there were too many stories of housemaids going missing, like Rebecca, of housemaids getting pregnant, of the madams, particularly the, the women. So women were doing this other way to other girls, beating them up. Just before my book came out that Christmas, my book came out in February, March. I was going, going on holiday and I came across a feed online and it was of a woman who had, this, this is 2020, right? She had broken the head or split the head open of her eight-year-old maid because she suspected her of sleeping with her husband. So this was like, I think that made me think, you know what, Abby, tell the story. Don't worry about it. Whatever happens with the book happens. You've, you've, you've done the right thing. So sadly, it, it, it was very much a part of us growing up and still is. Mm. Wow. I want to talk before, we've got a couple of questions from book club members. The conversation around your book has been like hopping in our group. <laughs> Just there's so many themes of empowerment and disempowerment that I mean, of course, I mean, not to jump the shark here, but, you know, here in America, we are in real time watching women's rights be repealed and roll back and sort of freedoms we thought were settled law are on the chopping block right now. And it feels impossible 
it feels shocking. We're all just looking around going, what is happening? And so I think to some degree, we're reading your book at a time when we're feeling fragile, that freedoms are not guaranteed, no matter how long they've been in place, that they are tender. And so I appreciate just, this is a sidebar, but just your book has given us an anchor right now for the cultural conversation we're having here in America about women's reproductive rights and what it means to have ownership over our own bodies and thus our own futures. And so the timing of this, we didn't exactly know that we'd be reading your book during this exact time in America, but it has been really, it served us well as a, as a point of connection to your characters. I mean, here we are in the land of plenty, right? We are in the (laughs) land of privilege and yet we are reading about your characters right now going, this is making new sense to us. Mm -hmm. I want to close Mm -hmm. though, before I bring some of their questions to you, I want to focus on Adonai and Miss Tia's relationship. Of course, we see Tia, you know, as a woman who knows what she wants and isn't afraid to get it and to take it. And obviously because of that, Adonai admires her. We all do. And, and works with her to, to leave big madam's house and hopefully attend school. And so I really liked that you inserted a strong female role model. I appreciated that because that's also true in every sort of disenfranchised culture for women that's patriarchal in nature in every one of them, even then. And even there, there are strong women who sort of buck the traditions and go their own way and make their own space. And I appreciated Tia for Adani at this point in the story. So can you talk a little bit about her and her dedication to Adani's education, which you let us know from the jump was the most important thing to her. I loved that, like that sort of soul anchor that she had in the middle of her heart and just kind of enabling Adani to see that she is capable of being the girl with the louding voice. Mm-hmm. I think Miss Tia came from me thinking, Abby, what we will do, right? You're writing a story, but what we will do. So I've, I've, I've visited Lagos quite a few times since I came to study here and live here. And every time I went and visited and I would see a driver, a cook, you know, whoever it is, being talked down upon and being just not treated very well. I'm so non-confrontational by nature. So I would retreat and I would silently fume. Like, I would be like, oh my gosh, I would do nothing. And so when I was writing Tia, I, I started with that. So she started as, she saw Adonai day in, day out. And she silently fumed and she did nothing. And, you know, even though I didn't really show Tia's point of view, but in my mind, she was thinking, awake at night thinking to do something but I don't think I can until she could right until she went there that day and said look listen I'm gonna help you in any way I can and I thought it was important to show that even if you're not by nature because many of us are not by nature sort of I can do this I'm powerful I speak up I give speeches and not everybody's like that but in your own little tiny way and with tiny little gestures of kindness of reaching out you can change a life and you can make a difference. And that's really why Tia was, you know, she didn't from day one start to scream at Big Madam. In fact, she never did until when she went to pick her up and Big Madam said, well, she's busy. And she says, well, you know, we agreed. 
Um, so yeah, it was just showing that that people like me who can change mm. things. That's good. <laughs> I like that. I I appreciate that empowerment. Those have always been the women at every point along history that have turned the tides and made a difference. And, and it just seems to also be standard protocol that it's women helping and serving women. That's just how it goes. I mean, that's what the data shows us, that we don't wait around for the powerful and the patriarchy to honor us and value us and esteem us and raise us to equality. But it just seems to be generation after generation, culture after culture, women to women. And so that to me felt strong and encouraging that that is still the world that we are building still like we're the ones we're the ones to do it. And so I love that you asked yourself that question. What am I going to do here? And you made that choice. Okay. All right, Abby, I've got a couple of questions from the book club. We waded through a ton, so I can't bring them to you all because we can't sit on this phone all day. Here's one though. This is from Jennifer DeWitt. And she said, Abby, were there any particular books, stories, or other authors that inspired you as you were writing this book? Yes, I really enjoyed reading The Color Purple when I was writing. And even though it's very different, but it was an, another young girl who was forced to grow up very quickly. And again, because it was written in kind of, you know, dialect and, you know, a voice, a very specific voice. So that really helped me. Um, and then just reading other books about women's rights and what they're going through and all of that was... I, I would confess that I did most of my most of my inspiration came from researching articles and just reading, you know, when you read an article or a report and you see direct quotes from women. So saying, look, my husband died and I was kicked out of his property and I have nowhere to live. Or, you know, I've been trying to have a boy and I haven't been able to, and so my husband brought in a younger girl. So just reading those direct quote from the mouth of women themselves that were then taken and transcribed and put into articles and reports and human rights convention human rights and all of that that was more powerful for me because it felt like I was going listening directly to women yeah. telling their stories literally plucked from real life and that's how it felt I, I can tell you that for sure as one of your readers it felt true and factual and almost biographical I mean it, it, you could have convinced me the whole thing was a true story <laughs> written into a novel form because really it was, and it is. Here's another question from Beth Britton. She wants to know, how do you think, Abby, you personally identify with Adani's character? In what ways are you the same? And in what ways are you different? Oh, wow. That's a very interesting question. One I've never thought about. How are we the same? I think I try to be happy, right? Regardless of what life, it's really hard to do that, but you have to mentally tell yourself to do that. But I think that's where it ends. Adjani is, you know, she can be feisty. She says what's on her mind. I don't really say what's on my mind. I try to be really nice to people. And well, I am very determined. So the girl with the loading voice was my one millionth word attempt to write a story that would attract a publisher. So I was determined to get published at some point, but I didn't know how that would happen. So I went through the master's course, but I had written so many. 
few times before then and just refusing to give up. So maybe that's that. That's great. I'd love to hear that. I didn't know that piece of your story that you were just like, this will find its way to a shelf someday and did it ever. How long did it take you, by the way, from first idea to like, I have a book contract because you wrote it first, right? Like you wrote the whole thing because sometimes it's opposite. You know, you get your contract and then you write it per specification, but you did it opposite of the market, like the industry standard. How long was that? Three years. Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine tons on the cutting room floor, rewrites. Absolutely. Frustration, tears, and all of that. Way, way before I even got somebody to look at my story. Mm. Who were your early readers? So my, my course mates online. And then I remember, so my course mates, we all doing my course. So they would, they read about two, three chapters. So it was very much myself. And, and then I remember reaching out to one or two agents and then swiftly replying saying, sorry, this, there's no market for this. Yeah. It was very interesting to see that, you know, and that really depressed me for a bit. Not, I mean, I cried and my husband was like, listen, do not listen to that. Write the story. That's what matters. Write a Jimmy story and see what comes out of it. And, and then I then I found my agent because I went through a competition and she was judging and, and that's it. So turns out there was a market for it. Who's laughing now? <laughs> <laughs> I tell writers all the time, you cannot take one person's opinion out of the publishing industry as if that is law, because it just isn't. I mean, it just absolutely isn't. And so I love your tenaciousness. Thank goodness you didn't take no for an answer. If you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, you know that I'm literally always wearing Able. I've believed in this brand from day one. I will forever champion a fashion company that's not only devoted to chic, effortless style, but that also empowers women through opportunity and dignity. So I was thrilled to take my love of Able to the next level this spring and collaborate on a collection of dresses with sleeves and with pockets. Hello. As you might know, we love dresses with sleeves around here, and we also love dresses with pockets, and we especially love ones that are size inclusive and versatile enough to be worn a million ways for any occasion. You guys, it has been so fun to see this collab come to life. Plus, Abel has so many other amazing new apparel items, sandals, sneakers, handbags, jewelry, perfect for spring and summer. And how incredible that dressing the part with Abel is also doing so much good in our world. Head on over to ableclothing.com to check out my dress collection and all their amazing new arrivals. And then use my code JEN to save 15% off anything. So that's ableclothing.com and use the code JEN. Two more questions from members. This is from Karis Weeble, and she said, Abby, I noticed the grammar shifting slightly as Adani learns more. I'm sure that was purposeful, but was it difficult? I feel like that would have been really hard to do so beautifully. It was hard. In fact, I I, I did it and it was like splashing cold water on your face. It was so jarring. So what I did was I discarded everything I wrote towards the end. And then I finished the book in Adani's voice. I went back to rewriting Adani's voice from end, beginning to end. Then I marked the manuscript and said English, and I typed English starts improving here. And then I would go every other sentence, I'll tweak one word and then tweak two words and then tweak three words <laughs> so that it would be as seamless as possible. So that's what I did to get through that. Came through. That was a labor <laughs> that was important. 
and we experienced it. So appreciate your like commitment to get it right. Last but not least, this is from Lindsay Boyd. And she said, Abby, do you think Adony will be coming back in any of your future books? I loved her so much and hope we get a true chance to hear from her again. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell us this. I don't know. I always say that my mother, I tell the story every time. So apologies if you've heard it, but my mother loved Adani so much. It was her first fiction in like 30 years because she's an academic and she read it during the lockdown and she called me saying, you've not finished that book, Abby. You've not, Adani needs to come back. She needs to go to the United Nations. And she told me a whole raft. She has it all written. (laughs) She has it all written. And I was distracted when she was saying all these things. So I was like, "Uh uh uh uh-huh, yeah, mommy, bye. And I hung up and I checked my email and she was like, because I know you are not listening, here is what I think needs to happen. Oh my gosh. Every time, <laughs> every time I email. hear that question, I know she did. She's like that. Every time I hear that question, I always say that somebody has told me what needs to happen. I just need to find the time to write it. But I think the answer is, I don't know. What will be interesting is to, to see what happens with Adelie's mom, then Adelie, and sort of bring them all together. But I don't know. I don't either, but I love the idea. And we also in book club, we all think too, this could make an absolutely beautiful movie. I'm, I don't know if anyone has come knocking at your door for the like screenplay, but it's so vivid. The landscape is so vivid. It's almost like its own character that we can just, we can see it. We have vision for it. So also we are very good at casting our author's books. So if you would like us to cast this for you, we are Please. at your service. We have done it for many of our books. Okay, last. Here we go, wrapping up here. Two two last questions from me. First of all, you're obviously, the best writers are readers. We know that you're talking to a whole community of, of readers. What are you reading right now that you love or any, it, maybe they're current or maybe like this is my go-to favorite book ever, but just a couple of recommendations that you are saying, put this book in your hand and read it this summer. One of the novels I've really always loved is Leanne Moriarty's books. You know, I love Big Little Lies, which you all have known. Yeah, and, you know, and My Other Husband's Secrets. So I love that. I, I've, I've really enjoyed My Sister the Serial Killer by Oni Hargraithwaite, who's Nigerian. It's a slim book, but it's it's really nice and different and funny in its own way. Open Water by Kele Bazuma Nelson is written in, third, in second person, but it's very intense. And it's, it's a tiny book about two Black lovers in the UK. And it's really doing quite well and it's it's well loved. Okay. All right. We will link to all of those. Those are great recommendations. What did you say that one was? My Sister the Serial Killer? Yeah. And did you say it was funny? Yes. Okay. Great. That's it. I just, I literally just jotted that down. Last but not least, we would love to know what you're working on. What's next? You have had this incredible success, which means surprise. You now get to be a career writer. And so obviously we want more from you. Are you working on something new already? I'm trying to. I think one of the one of the downsides of having this kind of success in your first book, I know other authors have had more success, but this was me writing in dialect, Nigerian, you know, immigrant. Totally it's not expecting so any of these. Yes. It's just like, what on earth? And so I'm thinking, what what next for me? And I've had a lot of, you know, questions. So I'm I'm exploring different ideas and hoping one of them would stick. And I think trying to write something that is not a Denise voice, 
something very different. I'm just hoping that people would understand that I can't write Adonai forever. It's, it's the scariest thing. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you do. I mean, the sky's the limit. You you chose such a an interesting niche to write inside of. So innovative and different, but now you can do whatever you want. I mean, and you've got the writing skills for it, obviously. And so I really look forward to seeing like what else you have in your brain, what other kinds of stories and landscape and characters you have. This is going to be really, really great. I remember one time talking to Liz Gilbert and she was just like, the first book that really I put into the world was Eat, Pray, Love. What are you supposed to do? Like, what are you supposed to do? That There is no way like to match yeah. it. And she's like, <laughs> at that point, you just move forward for the love of your work, you know, for the integrity of the next story, the next project. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you leave the outcomes that you don't, yeah. you take your hands off the outcomes. Yeah. And, and she's Brown, lovely, by the way. She's so lovely. <laughs> Brene Brown told me one time, she's like, we are not one trick ponies. That's not what we mm-hmm. are as writers. That is yeah. not our work. Yeah. Our work is to do our yeah. best job every time with a project in front of us. And we are not hit machines. Like we're writers. And I'm just like, well, that is a wonderful way to take a lot of pressure off. Thank you. I will take and just that as well. enjoy the project, enjoy the story, enjoy the characters. Well, I'll tell you what, whatever you decide to finally write on paper, we'll read it. So we will line up (laughs) for your next book. We think you are fantastic. And we have just loved, loved your book and book club. And so thank you for your time today. Thank you for taking our questions and just contributing to like a ton of our members were like, I wouldn't have read it. And now I have, and I'm so much richer for it. And so lucky us. Okay, so sending Thank you all our love well. from America <laughs> across the pond to you. Get those fingers on your laptop and get typing we'll on do. that next book. Thank we're, you. We're Thank anxiously you. awaiting. <laughs> Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you to your book club. Um, Absolutely. Well for just giving, exactly. giving me a chance. Thank you. You are welcome. Thanks.